God, we thank you so much that anything the enemy tries to take from us, he can't. That he may try and, and, and attack us, he may try and come against us, but we know that what is in us is greater. So Lord, we thank you for protection. We thank you for peace. We thank you for your love for each and every single one of us today. And God, as we get ready to open your word, we just pray that it would be a lamp unto our feet, that we might see differently than we ever have before. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. High five somebody and tell them, you look like you need Jesus. It is so great to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Nick Newman, and I want to say welcome. If you are here for the first time, it's an honor that you chose to be here with us because we realized you could have been anywhere. We're not going to point you out or make you feel weird today. The only thing I ask is, hey, at some point during the worship experience, you fill one of these connect cards out. It's our way of connecting with you. And so we're not going to show up at your doorstep. I just want to send you a note that says, thanks for being here and as a part of our worship experience today. Church, could you help me welcome every person here for the first time? We're excited that you're here and excited for what God is doing uh, in the life of our church. We're, we're entering into a new series today called Really Good News. And I don't know about you, but when I tend to turn on the news on TV or scroll through my Facebook timeline, I see a lot of things that aren't really good news. I see a lot of hurt and a lot of things that are going on in the world. And, and then I look at Scripture, and there's some passages of Scripture where I find tremendous amounts of hope. But then there's other passages of Scripture where I read it and go, where is hope in all of this? And so what I wanted to do t- during this two-week series leading up to Easter is dive into some passages of Scripture that, that really kind of seem dark and really seem hopeless for you and I, but I believe that tucked inside of God's Word, there is some really good news. And so today we're going to dive into a passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. But before we do that, I want to bring you up to speed with where we're at in the story. So Genesis chapter 1, Scripture tells us that God created everything, that there was nothing. And then in one moment, he spoke everything into existence. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He goes into creator mode. He starts creating the stars and the heavens and, and the earth and water. And then he, he's like, hey, we got to put, we got to put animals in the water. So he makes fish. Come on. How many of y'all love the fish? So a couple of y'all, y'all ain't really, y'all more of y'all love the fish. Y'all be lying in church. He creates fish, and he, he goes on, and he starts creating seeds so that we can have vegetables. I'm not going to ask you how many of y'all like vegetables because they're gross. So he makes everything. He starts creating this, and then he, he's at the end of everything he's creating, he's going, it is good, it is good. He makes man, and when he makes man, he says, we're going to make man in our image. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there in Genesis chapter 1, and he says, we're going to make them in our image image. God, you and I were created in the image of God. God creates man. And when he creates man, he says it's very good. He continues on creating. Adam is now walking and doing life with God. They're together. It's perfect. They're walking hand in hand with God in the garden. I mean, for you and I, it's hard for us to imagine because we don't live in that world, but in the way that God created you and I to live, It was to be in perfection with him. No sickness, no pain, 
of suffering, walking hand in hand with the Creator. As God and Adam are walking through the garden, he's placed him to manage what's called the Garden of Eden. And in this garden, there's a lot of incredible things that are there. One of those things is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he eats, God tells him, Adam, there's one thing I want you to not do, and that's eat from this tree. You've got everything to rule over. You're going to manage everything, but there's one tree that I don't want you to eat from. Because if you eat from it, he says, if you eat from it, you will surely die. So Adam, I don't, I don't want you to die. I didn't create you to die. But if you eat from this tree, this is what's going to happen. So what God tells him to do is to not eat from the tree. And then he realizes, man, Adam is an incredibly weird dude by himself. So he goes, there's one thing that's not good, and that's for man to be alone. So then God takes from the rib of Adam, and he makes Eve. Now, Adam has a wife, and Adam looks at his wife, and Scripture says he loved her, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, and all the men said, amen. Right, so Adam has a wife now. Then we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that a serpent has slithered his way into the garden, proposing some questions to Eve. He looks at Eve and says, hey, when it comes to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did did God really say that you couldn't eat from it? And, and that's really the question that you and I get proposed day in and day out when it comes to sin. Did God really say not to do that? Did God really, are you sure about it? And then what Eve tells the serpent, well, maybe. So he proposes one more question. Well, did God really say that? Surely, here's what he's doing. He's trying to keep you from experiencing him. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll become just like him. He's actually withholding something from you. And Eve, in that moment, takes the fruit, and she takes a bite of it, and then she offers it to her husband, Adam. Now, there's many reasons why Adam could have taken from this apple. I think he saw his wife standing there naked with a piece of fruit. She offered it, and he said, heck yeah. So, so he takes of the fruit. He takes a bite out of it. And then this is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They had done the thing that God had told them not to do. And, and up until this point, they had been living in perfection with God. There was no sense of guilt or shame. But Scripture says that when they did the thing that God had asked them not to do, something shifted in their life. It says that immediately their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What you and I are going to see over the next couple of verses is exactly what we do when we sin. The first thing they did was they tried to cover it up. They tried to make a way to where it didn't really happen. They didn't really have to acknowledge it. They were just going to cover it up. They were going to sweep it under the rug as if nothing had ever taken place. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And then we go on to read that when the cool of the evening breeze was blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. The second thing you and I do when we sin is we hide. 
They tried to cover it and then they tried to hide from God. Because guilt and shame will make you and I feel like we can't walk into the presence of one who is holy. So they try and hide and then God comes to them and he calls out and he says, Adam, where are you? He replied, well, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. See, this concept of nakedness, this fear, was never a part of God's original creation, but now they knew of both good and evil, so there's this shift that's taken place. God knew where they were geographically. He didn't lose them, but there was a difference in where he left them in perfection to where they are now in separation. There was a disconnect. There was a shift that had taken place. So it says, who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree which fruit I commanded you to not eat? The man replied, it was that woman you gave me. (laughs) He just blamed somebody else. He said, God, look, let's be honest. You gave me this woman. She gave me the fruit. This is probably on you. God, it was that woman that you gave me. So not only do we try and cover up our own sin, we try and hide, but, but we also try and blame other people. There's been plenty of times in your life and in my life where we've made some sort of sin in the eyes of God and we chose to blame somebody else. Well, I wouldn't have snapped on them if they didn't do this to me. Or, you know, I would really love them if they did this. And it's just blaming. He goes on to say, It was the woman that you gave me. So the Lord looked at the woman and said, what have you done? Then she said, it was the serpent. She's not going to take credit for it. That's why I did it. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because of all that you have done, you are more cursed than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly groveling and in the dust as long as you live. There will be hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Then he said to the woman that I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in pain, you will give birth. So women, if you've given birth and it was painful, you can thank Eve for that. It says, and you will desire to control over your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since You listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And it will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground which you are made of. For you are made from dust and you will return there. He says, Adam, look, you're going to work the ground for the rest of your life, and here's what you need to know. It's never going to be enough. So men, if you wonder why you struggle with being a workaholic, it's a byproduct of the fall because it's never enough. You will work for the rest of your life, and you'll have enough food on your table. And some of you have made incredible financial gains, but internally, it's never enough. He then goes on to say you'll return to the dust which you came from. He says, hey, you're going to die at some point. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who lived. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord said, look, human beings 
have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and they take from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And then he sent Adam to cultivate the ground which he had made. After sending them out, the Lord stationed a cherubim to the east of the garden. He placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when I read this passage of Scripture, I don't see a whole lot of hope. I see people who have messed up and made mistakes, and now they're being banished and sent away. But I believe that tucked under the surface of this passage of Scripture are three things that you and I really need to take away from it that I think can change the way we look at Genesis chapter 3, and we can come out leaving with some really good news. Are you ready for some good news? The first thing that I want you to go back to is Genesis chapter 3, 15. Because what you and I have to know is that every part of Scripture is actually about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. That's why John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It's always been about Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. From Genesis chapter 13, what God lets you and I in on is a depiction of what's to come when Jesus dies on the cross for us. How many of you have ever been bruised? You got a bruise before, right? A bruise is incredibly painful. I, uh, I'll tell you a story really quick. I, I went uh, it was two years ago. I went go-kart racing with a group of pastors. Not a great idea, right? So we, get, we, get, uh, we went and had steak first, which was incredible. I love me a good steak. And so we had some steak, and then we went to race go-karts. We get to the pit in Mooresville, and we get into these uh, racetracks. And, and I look at the pastor beside me, and he winks at me. I'm like, this is going to be terrible. So we hit the gas pedal. We're rounding, and we're, we're in lap one. And I start hearing people crashing all over the place. And next thing I know, I round this corner, and, and I'm rounding this, and all of a sudden, I look up, and I see this go-kart that's actually flying. Like, it's in the air and coming straight at me. And it had hopped over the rails because one guy had hit him incredibly hard, and, and this go-kart ends up basically hitting my kneecap and pinning it to the steering column, and there was a lot of blood involved. Three pastors ended up in the hospital. It was a, it was a, it was a great... Torn rotator cuff, broken ribs. I mean, it was a long, it was a long night. About the next day, I, I'm getting up, and I've got this cut on my knee, and, and I look, and there's this incredibly large bruise that's there. See, a bruise is, is a sign that pain has been inflicted. But what a bruise is, is a bruise is not permanent. It just shows a momentary sign of affliction. When Jesus dies on the cross for you and I, it seemed ultimate. But it wasn't. Because on day three, he got out of the grave. On day three, he rose. So when Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 reads that there's going to be hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, that he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel, it points us to the cross where Jesus dies for you and I, and it seems like it's going to be ultimate, but on day three, he gets out of the grave, crushing the serpent's head, proclaiming that death has been defeated. So the good news for you and I is this, that in Christ, the enemy can only bruise you. He may try and cause you pain, 
Scripture teaches us that his goal and desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't want to give you a flat tire. He wants to wreck your life. And he will attack. But in Christ, he can only bruise you. There will be a temporary moment of pain. And for some of you, you've had one of those bruises that you thought you were going to die. Right? You ever hit something? Like you hit your funny bone and you're like, I'm never making it out of this. And you know what happens? You live. First Peter says, brothers, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that you endure, for they make you a co-heir in suffering with Christ. You and I will suffer at times in this life. But we can take hope in the fact that in Christ, the enemy can only bruise us. He will attack us. Scripture says that no weapon formed will prosper. It doesn't mean the weapons won't form. So the enemy will come against you. He will attack you. He will try and destroy the plans and the purpose that God has for your life. But when you're in Christ, he can only bruise you because he's already been defeated. When we look at that, if you're here today and you you say, hey, I, I don't believe in Jesus or I haven't placed my hope in him, what Scripture teaches us is that you're still a slave to sin. But the moment you say yes to Jesus, the good news is that it's but a bruise. I have to remind myself of this all the time. And I've been preparing to teach this for a couple weeks. And can I tell you, the last couple weeks have just kind of been like terrible, right? You ever had those weeks where you're like, Jesus, you either need to come back or like do something because it's rough. So last Saturday I ended up with, with food poisoning and then we taught here on Sunday morning, and then uh, Wednesday, um, y'all know, there's two things I'm terrified of. It's dentist and spiders, right? I got bit by a spider on Wednesday, and it looked like I was growing a cantaloupe on my arm, and then Thursday, my grandma passed away, and, and then it was just one thing after the other. You ever had one of those weeks where it was one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, and I get down, I get to Friday, and, and I sit down, and I'm looking at my notes for this weekend, and I'm going, it's just a bruise. It's just a bruise. The enemy's trying, he's attacking, he's doing all of these things, but it's just a bruise. In Christ, I know where my healing comes from. I know where my strengths come from. I know that, that the weapons will be formed, but they will not prosper because when Jesus looks at the disciples, he says, you will face troubles of many kind in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the hope that we have. In Jesus. The second thing that it shows me is that through the bloodshed of Jesus, your sin is covered. So the first point of good news that we talked about was that in Christ, the enemy can only bruise you. The second thing is that through the bloodshed of Jesus, your sin is covered. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 says, And then the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, said that Adam and Eve had sewn fig leaves together to cover themselves. But what they could do on their own was not sufficient covering. It was only through bloodshed that Adam and Eve were able to be covered by God. What God is pointing you and I to, again, is the cross of Jesus Christ, that through bloodshed, your sin, my sin, could be covered. 
that no matter how big a mistake you'd made, no matter how much you've messed up, God loved you enough to cover you by sending Jesus in your place. God chooses, even though Adam and Eve have made mistake after mistake, they've done the one thing that God has asked them not to. They hid from him. They tried to blame other people. God chooses to sacrifice an animal on their behalf, pointing you and I to what Romans 8, 5, chapter Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 9 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. If you've ever wanted to know, does God really love me? The scripture says that he demonstrated it. Like, like the question has been answered that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say that we had to wait for it. He didn't want you to work on sewing your own fig leaves together. He made covering for you. While you were still sinning, while you were still making mistakes, while you still had issues, faults, flaws, and failures, Christ died for you. And then verse 9 says, since we have now been justified by his blood. What does that mean? The word justified there could be translated to this, just as if I never sinned. By Christ's bloodshed, when God sees you and I, once we place our hope and trust in Jesus, it's just as if we never sinned. In his eyes. So when God looks at us, you would think that that he sees our faults, our flaws, our failures. He doesn't. He sees Jesus. He sees his payment for our sin. He sees his bloodshed as our covering. That through him, your faults and flaws have been covered. It says, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Friends, I, I have to tell you that There is no escaping wrath or judgment apart from Jesus. Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to the Father is through me. And Jesus has every right to say that because he's the only one that died for you and I. It was a sinless sacrifice that had to be made. It's like you and I, having this incredible debt over our lives. Scripture teaches us that that the payment or the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. It's like having a a, a huge mortgage or or payment. Maybe you have $200,000 in debt. It's like getting that phone call that says, hey, your debt's been covered. That's what salvation is. You and I have to know that we've got this debt over our life because of sin, but the debt has already been covered. The question is, do you want to continue to try and pay for something or do you want to receive the gift? That's salvation. I can't work for it. I can't earn it. The only way for me to pay the debt is through death or by accepting the one who has already died in my place. The third thing that it shows me is this that God desires or God wants to protect you from what will destroy you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 said, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing both good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground which he had been taken from. When I read that passage of scripture and you read a word like he 
banished him, it looks a whole lot like punishment. But what God was actually doing is protecting him. I wonder if there are times in your life and my life where God is actually trying to protect us, but we feel like he's trying to punish us. His desire was to protect Adam and Eve from now eating from the tree of life because then they would live in sin forever. No freedom from guilt, no freedom from shame, no chance of being reunited back into perfection. They would have lived forever in bondage and captivity to their choices and decisions. God says, I, don't, I didn't create them to live like that. So he banished them. What seemed like punishment was God protecting them. I wonder if God hasn't closed some doors in your life and in my life, not to punish us, but to protect us. Because we serve a good, loving, heavenly Father who desires to protect his children. It reminds me of a story of a pastor friend out in Arizona and and he has a little daughter, and one day they were playing out in the backyard. He had gone inside for a little bit. He had come back out, and he sees that his daughter looks like she has so much joy on her face. She's incredibly happy with whatever she's playing with. So he's going, I've got to figure out what's she, what she messing with. So he rounds the corner, and, and this, his daughter is filled with joy and laughter, and she's so happy. But in her hands, she's got a rattlesnake. And he begins to panic. Because what she thinks right now is bringing her incredible joy, he sees as something that could potentially harm her. So he does what any loving father would do. He snatches the snake away and he kills it. And you would think that the daughter would be overwhelmed with joy and excitement, but if you've ever taken something from a toddler, you know that's not how the story goes. She screamed. She was angry. And she was frustrated because what she didn't understand in the moment was that her father loves her too much to let her continue dabbling in something that could destroy her. And I believe that that's a word for you today, that God loves you too much to let you continue to dabble in that which could destroy you. Like for some of you, God wants to protect you from some relationships that you currently have. God wants to protect you from a promotion or for some of you, God wants to protect you from maybe even a bigger spotlight because he knows it could destroy you. But as a good, loving, heavenly father, I believe that what God wants to do is through his love, protect us. So when I read Genesis chapter 3 on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. But when you and I take a moment, we dig beneath the surface, we learn that in Christ, the enemy can only bruise us. That through the bloodshed of Jesus, our sin is covered. And that God desires to protect us from that which destroys us. I think the whole point of this passage of scripture is this last thing that I'm gonna share with you is that God desires to redeem that which is broken. When I read Genesis chapter three, I learn that God's desire is to redeem and restore everything that was broken. 
He didn't wait for Jesus to begin a plan of redemption. From the moment they fell, he began restoring and redeeming. Reminds me of my childhood. I had a brother. We're 14 months apart, and uh, we liked to fight, right? So we, we got into a lot of fights together, and and uh, there was one day in particular we were fighting in the living room, and he got mad because I said something, and and my brother and I, 14 months apart, but he's like 5'5 five, five and 125 pounds of blonde hair. Like, we look different, you know? So he was a little man, and, and uh, he got mad at something I had said. And he grabs a remote control from the living room, and he hurls it at my head. But your boy got skills, so I bobbed it, and he missed. But then I heard this shatter. I turned around, and he had thrown the remote through the face of the oven the glass that's not an easy one to explain and so we looked at it and we were trying to figure out how do we fix it how do we how do we how do we make this work how do we put it back together so that maybe maybe just maybe dad won't really be mad at us the truth is we couldn't and for many of us we're in that same space today Like you've been trying to figure out how to pick up the broken pieces of your life. You've been trying to figure out how to put it together so that maybe God won't be mad at you or maybe God will still love you. Even You don't want him to see your messy, broken mistakes of your life. But but here's what I want you to know. That's exactly what he died for. And it wasn't until we made the decision to stop lying and stop hiding and come to dad and say, this is what happened that an external source was able to restore the brokenness. And I believe that's what God wants to do for some of us today. To take those things that are broken and out of alignment and bring them back into order. So with every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment, I believe that there are some people here today and you feel like you've, messed up, made mistakes, and failed. And I want you to know that from the very beginning of Scripture, God's desire has been to redeem and restore you. It's the whole reason why Jesus came, is to take that which was broken and restore it. Maybe you've been here and you've been trying to pick up the pieces of your life and you've been trying to put it back together. But today is the day where you'd say, hey, I I realize I can't do this on my own. I can't fix myself, but I want to place my hope and trust in Jesus. All you have to do today is simply say, I believe Jesus died in my place. You say, that seems really simple, Nick. That seems like like that's too good to be true. And and that's the really good news, is that it is too good to be true. But it's God's love for you and I that paved the way for this to happen. And so here's what we're going to do. If you're in here today and you'd say, hey, Pastor, that's that's me. I I need to take that next step. I want to place my hope and trust in Jesus. I'm tired of trying to fix my life on my own. I want to allow God the opportunity to step in and change everything. If that's you, would you just boldly lift your hand for a moment? I see those. I see those. 
Here's what we're going to do, church. Nobody's going to pray alone. We're going to pray together. Will you say this with me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, will you stand to your feet and help me celebrate with those who just made decisions this morning? We're going to continue in worship for a moment, and we're going to sing a song called Worthy, Worthy. And in this song, it talks about just how magnificent and marvelous God is. And the reason why we proclaim that he is worthy and he is holy is because of everything that we read in in Genesis, that he wasn't a God who waited for us to fix ourselves. He's a God who said, yeah, you've messed up and you've made mistakes, but I'm willing to cover that. And so today, would you worship him? Would you cry out to him? Would you sing, God, you are